UK Motor Talk. Good morning, good evening, whenever it is you're listening to us, hello, we are back again. Thank you for having us and thank you for listening. This is UK Motor Talk, I am Mike Gates and with me today I have... Jim, good evening, good morning, good day, good night. Graham, hello, how are we all? I'm David, I'm afraid, I hope you're all well. And I'm going to start by saying, oh my god, it's cold, it's so absolutely freezing. We are recording today when it's, I don't know, minus 27 or something outside. It's only about minus 1 or minus 2, but when your weather app tells you it feels like minus 10, I'm not quite sure how that happened. Surely if it feels like minus 10, it... it just is minus 10. But anyway, if you hear a noise that sounds like a 1990s Fiat gearbox, it's not just the inside of a gearbox exploding and, and rattling around like a, a can full of change. What it actually is, is just our, our teeth or bones shaking inside because we are so, so cold. Anyway, thank God for central heating. And I guess, thank goodness, we get to podcast from home so we can sit next to the central heating. Yeah, I'm not sure that Zoom is a reliable heat source, but, you know, if that's what you think, that's fine. It's, it's psychological. There's a lot of hot air on it. <laughs> there is on our Zoom, anyway. But dumb tish. Right, what shall we start with? Do you want the good news or the bad news? Shall we start with the bad news? It's the end of the Elise and the Exige, which is uh, very sad indeed, because I'm uh, I'm quite partial to an Elise or an Exige. Although I'm I'm not partial to the price, as we, uh, we spec'd an Elise up earlier on the website, didn't we? And, and we got to £65,000, which seemed like a lot of money. For a one of them. Full disclosure, I used to work at a Lotus dealership, so I've got a reasonable amount of experience in uh, in driving them and seeing the bills that go with them. I think the, the lots of trouble, usually serious mantra is uh, is probably a bit undeserved. I think if, um, if they were well kept up to and maintained and all the, the levels and things like that were checked, you know, once a week, once a fortnight, as as they should be. You know, if they were owned by motoring enthusiasts, they were they were generally okay. And if you were preventative in your maintenance and kept up to them, then uh, then they were fairly good. But I you know, I, I remember an exige with uh, with the only option you could order on it being twenty nine double nine five brand new. And I think an exige with all the options on it is north of a hundred thousand pounds these days. And that 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 just seems like a lot of money for what they are. Years and years and years ago, they were Porsche Boxster sort of rivals, weren't they? But I think is is that maybe where they started going a bit wrong, trying to uh, to steal Porsche buyers away rather than uh, than enthusiasts. And and now the prices are comparable with 911s and things like that. It was the Avora, I think, that did it, wasn't it? It all suddenly started going north of about 50 grand when that thing arrived, and it just doesn't seem to have stopped. I, I was amazed, as you were, to find out just how much these things are going for at the minute. And I can remember the Elise when it first came out being relatively affordable. It was the, the weapon of choice of IT consultants up and down the country, and, <laughs> you know... You know, track day darlings. It was. It does seem to have got a lot more expensive in the blink of an eye. But you know, you can only hope. I, I imagine Geely are wanting to sort of recoup some of their investment. They've put a lot of money into Hethel recently, the Chinese owners, which is great. Mm. Good for the company. Good for the supply chain. Good for the people that work there. But at the same time, I think I agree with you that it is a bit of a bit of a shame that they do seem to be waving goodbye to the enthusiast if you can call them that at the same time they seem to be aiming for the sort of 100 grand plus market with a 
product that isn't good enough to justify that. It's as though they want to be in sort of footballer territory, but they're still playing in a minor league somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I think we, you could certainly see in, uh, certainly, certainly in my day, it makes me sound rather older than I am, or possibly I am older than I am, I'm not sure, I feel it this week anyway, but, uh, the, uh, but back in my day, you know, you could see where the money went, occasionally people said, well it's, it's a lot of money for that, because you know, it doesn't come with anything, and there's no boot to speak of, and there's only two seats, and blah blah blah, and uh, you know the, the radio straight out of the, uh, the mid-90s, let alone the early 2000s but you could see where your money went when you drove the things in the ride, in the handling, uh, in the steering, in the damping, in the brakes, in the engine, everything, just the, the whole package when it came to driving the car. You know, what what is a car for? It's driving. You drive a car, that's it. That's all you do with it. And they, you know, they were the best in the world at it, in, in my humble opinion, or certainly one of the best at it. And uh, and and that's where your money went. So you could almost forgive the uh, the quirks and the you know the slightly flaky bits of the odd build quality and rattles and shakes on the interior and the the Vauxhall indicator stalks and air vents and things like that for because um, you know your money went into the uh, into the the components that made it made it a driver's car. I'm I'm not sure the interior quality, you know, when we were looking today, okay, they've made it a bit nicer and a bit jazzier, but the interior quality is certainly not Porsche Boxster, let alone Porsche 911, is it? And this is the problem, isn't it? Because these are a car that have been built for enthusiasts like us. We are the geeks that like the detail in terms of the drive that you get with Lotus. And yes, you can forgive the other bits and pieces because it is a driver's car. The problem is that that sort of money, it is a lot of money, and it puts you into some more exotic territory. And I know that Lotus sees itself as a very exotic brand, and I guess I kind of agree, but it was obtainable in a way that it isn't now. And for me, looking at the sort of money that it is, I would be really tempted to go for uh, an Alpine A110. I mean, it's in its pure basic form, that's about 46 grand to start. Buy one maybe a year old or something similar, you can buy a really high-spec one. And still save yourself a lump of change. To my mind, an Elise, as, as you say, we were looking at earlier on, and an Exige, that, that's perhaps 15, 20 grand more than, than I think they probably should be. I've not driven one for quite a few years. I think the last I drove was an A-Lan with the uh, Isuzu motor when they first came out. So that's a good few years back. But I've never been a great fan, and certainly at that stage... I wasn't over-impressed with how good they were compared to 60s ones like the Alan S2 or, or the original Alans, which were a very, very good car, very affordable, great fun for the money. And I'm not sure the later cars had that because they they, they sort of fell away from that. And I think the Elite was, was also a great car. In recent years, I think they, they, they're just not worth the money that they're asking for them. They have all of the problems associated with limited uh, production capacities like people like Marcos and TVR and so on and so on. Now, most of those are failed because they were never really bailed out. And Hethel, as has been rightly said, had a lot of uh, Chinese money flooding in. But I'm not sure that from what I've seen and what I've heard that the product is good enough to justify the price tag. Not when... You can buy into, all right, okay, I have a, uh, an interest in Italian marks, but certainly if I'm spending that sort of money, I would want to maybe look at a, something from Maserati or, or something that had a different sort of pedigree. 
you know, the association with the Lotus Formula One team and uh, Colin Chapman and, you know, fabulous design and so on and so on has been stretched beyond breaking point for me anyway. See, now, I wouldn't say a Maserati is the same kind of car. And you, you, by all means, guys, shout me down if I'm wrong here, but to my mind, Lotus is about the drive. It's not about being a GT car. It's about being able to take it round a track. It's about being able to destroy a B road and being, I guess, kind of the best at that. The difficulty is that as the level of other cars have improved, increased and, and, and got better, again, I'll say like the Alpine, for example, this is a car with a roof and with air conditioning and all the other fripperies that you want from a modern car, the gap gets a bit tighter and that's where it becomes harder to justify the money. I think for the money that you, you would need to spend, I'll be more tempted, if you want that pure driving experience, to look at something like a Caterham. Yes, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I happened to stop for lunch, oh, pre-lockdown lunch, in a pub car park. Um, can't remember exactly where it was, no, somewhere in Surrey. Uh, but it was full of the local Caterham Club's collection. They were all there having their Sunday lunches. Some fabulous motor cars. And sadly, that's a marketplace that Lotus no longer wanted to be in. That's where they sold all the rights to it, etc., etc. Caterham made a, a, a success of it for many years. And th- that, for me, is still an enthusiast car which the later Lotuses, for me, are not. Well, it seems that Lotus seem to be going back to their sort of higher-end stuff. I mean, we haven't had an Esprit for a long time. The Evora probably isn't the direct replacement. This new thing that seems to be coming, once the remaining stocks of the Elise and Exige are gone, it seems to be that um, Lotus are concentrating on this new Model 131, which is hailed as being the new Esprit. So is that where the range is going to take off from now on? They're sort of basically drawing a line underneath that and everything upwards will be basically knocking on the door of Ferrari and Tesla territory by the looks of things. If you look at the the number of cars that Lotus sell in this country and across Europe, you know, it's not they, they don't sell in huge numbers. They, you know, they've never had to. But if you're check I I don't know how many they sell in the UK. I was desperately trying to look that up on uh, on SMMT, but I can only see January figures and they uh, they don't appear in there indicating they didn't sell anything in January. But if you even if you sell, I don't know, a thousand cars a year, well, if you've chucked 80 million into the factory, how, how many years are you looking to recoup that over? And how much does that add on to the cost of each car? You know, even even if you're you're doing a thousand cars a year and you do it over ten years, you know that's that's still eight grand a car, isn't it? It's it's a hell of a lot of money, and that's you know, is that is that just getting too far away from them? So it's it's a sad day, but it's uh, or, or I don't know, should we uh, should we be grateful that we've seen it and seen its development and its arc and and all had the chance to have a go, particularly the Elise? You know, I've got got very mm. fond memories of that. So should we should we be be jolly that we've uh, we've been around for it rather than be be sad that it's gone? I'm not sure. I'd just be grateful that they still exist. To be honest, I mean Lotus has come so close to the chopping block so many times, and it's actually a hundred million that they put in. So a hundred million has gone in, and so there's even more that they're having to recoup. So I'd say uh, that you're pretty much bang on the money there, Jim. They've got to try and get some money back out and making lightweight cars that they can just about justify charging lots of money for in this day and age probably isn't going to cut the mustard if you'll pardon the uh the norfolk <laughs> pun there because there is very a good coleman's mm. connection q allen partridge sound effect but no um it, to all intents and purposes i think they are basically 
starting to fight further up the um, up the food chain, aren't they? By the looks of it. Let's look forward to that super lightweight SUV. Well, they've got to have one, haven't they? Everyone else. Ferraris is coming this year, if you believe the rumours. So that's the end for everybody, isn't it? That's the Ferrari unannounceable, isn't it? Can we have a Lotus SUV? I mean, that's that's so far removed from uh, from Colin Chapman's principles of uh, mm. of automotive design. It's he he really would be turning in his grave. But it's yeah. uh, I, I mean, I always found that the people that were most disappointed with uh, with Lotus or didn't quite get it were. Um, People that had come from Porsches or from Mercedes or uh, or Audi or cars like that and, and gone into a Lotus for a fun weekend toy, but something to pose around in, to be honest. And, you know, they'd all say, oh, well, my Boxster never did that, or well, my 911 never did that, or this, that, and the other. And it it was, um, I think, the yeah the, the marketing went wrong. But still, one of my all-time favourite days out driving cars, and whether they, uh, they're obviously not running it at the moment, but whether they'll keep... Uh, keep this going in the future was a day of driver training at Hethel at their test track and and sat next to you all day you had the uh, the drivers and the, you know the test and development drivers who developed the car over the years telling you how to get the best out of it and pushing you on and demonstrating all aspects of the handling and you do various stages and learn the understeer oversteer braking acceleration they break it all down into various sections and then the end of the day was lap after lap after lap of the track and uh, the the weather was actually really bizarre that day and it was it was teeming it down with rain one minute and and the track was bone dry about five minutes later so I really got to to push on in all weathers and all you know all conditions and it was superb it it taught me so much about driving and it was just one of those afternoons in a car when when everything clicks and and you got the the telepathy of it. I almost felt like I didn't have to move the steering wheel or move the pedals or do anything. I just thought about it and I want the car to go there and I want the car to do that and I'll have a bit more of that and I want to go that way and, and it just did it and it was that's when it just clicked for me and uh, I do hope they can keep keep somewhat of that philosophy going but uh, I don't think an SUV will, will quite give the same experience around Hethel but as long as they hold on to the track and they've got the right people developing the uh, the cars and the driving dynamics then They'll probably be very nice cars to drive. It's uh, is how much the accountants get involved in them. I think you you make a very good point about uh, post purchase training uh, of sort of performance cars because I know uh, for Porsche, for uh, for Jaguar, for Aston Martin, and so on. You know, is, and for Ferrari and uh, most of the Italian marks, it's it's absolutely critical. But it's just, it's, there's two reasons for it. A, they obviously want you to drive the product, and they want you to drive the product very well. But it's also acutely embarrassing when uh, overpaid uh, footballers stuff them into hedges, cars, other people's gardens, whatever. You know, that is really, really bad publicity for any performance car manufacturer. So it's it's very much in their interests and i think a lot of them still offer courses zero cost if you purchase the car subsequently i know a friend of mine some years ago before he went to aston martin was a demonstrator for ferrari and uh, he trained for them for a couple of years but it all went horribly wrong one day when an overconfident client managed to uh, sort of drive him up the banking at brands hatch and um Totaled the car, almost totaled both of them. Uh, the guy I'm talking about then <laughs> decided he wasn't quite so keen on taking complete novices out in high-performance cars. It wasn't so much fun when you uh, 
woke up in a hospital bed covered in plaster. A problem with modern performance cars, and I guess when I say performance cars, um, I mean even things like fast hatchbacks now. Because if you think about the hyper hatches, the 400 brake horsepower, uh, your AMG A45s, for example, I was driving earlier on today a Focus RS 375 brake horsepower, like the one I used to own, and they are so easy to drive, and they are incredibly quick, relatively speaking. You know, I say incredibly quick, it's about four and a half seconds to 60, so is that quick? I don't know. But nevertheless, it's so, so easy to jump in that and drive after you've driven, I don't know, a Fiesta or a VW Up or anything else. And with modern cars and modern technology, I think you become really complacent. I think they flatter the driver a lot. Yeah. And so I guess when you get back into something that's a high-performance car, that's rear-wheel drive, that that could potentially bite you, I think a lot of people get bitten because they're not expecting to have to, to really drive and, and pay as much attention, as much respect perhaps to the car that they are driving uh, as is needed. I think that's a very fair argument, Michael. It just comes down to the fact that the, the, the sort of cars that you're talking about, the very, very hot hatches, the top end of the hot hatch marketplace, you know, 350, 400 brake horsepower is is a pretty powerful motor car, but they are generally so very well sorted, so sophisticated, and they are very, very easy to drive. Unfortunately, they're also very, very easy to drive badly. Funny enough, saw a photo yesterday of an accident in the snow, which one of the participants, having climbed out of his car, decided to take a photo of and send it to the sun. Interestingly, two of them were BMWs and one was a, a high-performance Golf. And they'd all finished up sort of upside down in various digits, both sides of a very narrow road, which was covered in snow. So the idiot factor still prevails quite often. It's easy to drive fast. It's harder to drive quickly, isn't it? Any fool can drive fast in a straight line. It's much more difficult to drive well. Anyway, David uh, teaches on these things, and um, he knows what I'm saying. It's very, it's easy to drive a car these days. It's not so easy to drive it well and safely. It's easy to point a car and make it go in the direction you want to go, <laughs> but it's very difficult to drive it properly, I would yeah. say. It's, it's knowing what you're doing and looking further than just the end of the bonnet. That's the art. And if you're a member of the drag racing community and you'd like to complain about our comments about how easy it is to drive in a straight line, please don't forget to tweet us at UK Motor Talk, find us on Facebook and on Instagram, UK Motor Talk again, or write to us at PO Box, whatever it is. Two words. Chalk and cheese. Chalk and cheese. <laughs> I used to do that. I used to do drag racing in the 80s. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that. But um, you didn't. Uh, you didn't have too many corners to turn. Um, but if you <laughs> unless you got it very wrong, <laughs> yeah, it's gone badly wrong. I've been there too when the um, diff on the comp altered locked, and uh, uh, my colleague we used to take turns on driving the damn thing, and it locked, and he did a ninety left straight into the barrier, and it gave a few people that were watching from that point a bit of a surprise, but it gave him a bigger surprise. It's a dangerous sport, and you're not supposed to turn at all, but it's a very very exciting sport. I still love drag racing, so it's in the blood. It's the V8 still. Is the problem with a lot of modern cars that is is the traction too good on them? So you end up at silly speeds a lot quicker than you should do. You know, in, in the old days, driving on sheet tyres before we had such good winter tyres and four-wheel drive systems and traction control and 
electronic diffs and this, that and the other. You know, you, you couldn't get up to much of a speed because you were wheel spinning everywhere. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of 4x4s or four-wheel drive cars or all-wheel drive cars. You know, they, they can still get up to a decent speed because they've got the grip to go. The problem is they all weigh so much these days and they haven't quite got the grip to slow down and the weight of mm. them gives them that much more momentum and, uh, and you can't stop any quicker. Cars are so capable now that you have to drive them at such lunatic speeds and at such sort of stupid cornering speeds and so on in order to feel you're getting the most out of them that you're going to either end up dead or in prison or both, certainly without a licence, before you know it. Whereas, go back 20, 25 years ago when you had hot hatchbacks that had grip but you you knew likely when it was going to let go or you had the more skinny tired caterums before they all started getting fat old tyres bolted to them you could have a lot more fun at much lower speeds feel you were getting something out of it but you weren't going to be troubling the local A&E or the police station at any point if, unless again something had gone very drastically wrong the margin for error now is far less you can get into a lot more trouble a lot more quickly I think is the point I'm trying to make Yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly so is the answer to all this actually that we should just be all driving around in uh, in indoor spec go-karts because you feel like you're going quick in them you know, you can get electric ones these days so it's all good for the planet because i'd be up for that to be honest or or bolt a load of space savers to your car just just drive yeah. around on space savers what a lot of fun two cv wheels yeah. <laughs> most of the fun for far less of the speed you know you certainly actually, be going yeah. sideways quite quick actually we, we could try that on the track day fiesta couldn't we gates we, should we put a couple Why of not? space savers on the back and uh, and just see what happens they look really cool the red ones get four yeah, red I'll ones they so. look yeah you know, color coordinated go quite well with silver wouldn't it yeah it would be one away i think there's something to be said for driving a slow car fast rather than a fast car slow as well isn't there yep because yeah, i agree it's very easy like say in a fast car to get to speeds that are well let's face it illegal which means you can only ever drive the car at seven tenths but with something that's slow you can you can give it a bit more really drive the wheels off it and enjoy it go when you go through a country road and, and you know that you're not going to be breaking the speed limit but you're approaching the limit of the car there is something really enjoyable about that and one of my favorite drives of all time was taking an eye go up through some country roads and disappearing off the top end of uh, north sussex and yeah it was just absolutely phenomenal it's then they're, they're well, not a quick car they've got skinny little wheels they virtually run on space savers anyway don't they as they standard do. yeah i really really enjoyed it more than i thought i ever would and just so much fun just to point down a, a country road and just uh, and just have a laugh we had a mark one yaris that used to do that that was again same thing slightly bigger but it had a huge amount of fun it had very little power but it didn't weigh very much and mm. skinny tires and it just it was so much fun down country lanes you could just point it anywhere and feel you know, it rolled like anything so you knew what you were doing you know it wasn't just cornering flat and making you think well i'm not really going fast i'll have to drive faster you knew you were going relatively quickly but you knew that the uh, the envelope was being pushed so you didn't go too much further it was good fun great fun that little car so uh, I mean, the, or certainly in the not too distant past, the last time Lotus decided to uh, to stop making a model, the Seven, that was picked up by Catrum. Do we think anyone's going to pick up the Elise or the Exige, or pick up the plans from it and, and carry on making it in one form or another? I mean, it's certainly possible to electrify it, as we've seen. That's already been done, hasn't it? Because Tesla did that, and so did Hennessy. Yeah. Um, mm. Both of them basically took them, bastardized them a bit. Uh, and made them quicker in one form or another, either with electric power or by stretching it out a bit and putting a bigger engine in the back. So I, I guess it's possible. And then you had the the VX220, 
well, it's easy to re-engineer. It's just a load of extrusions, isn't it? I mean, that was the whole thing about the Elise, was it was extruded and glued together. I mean, I would say anybody could probably take that on without too much difficulty. Mm. How hard can it be? I guess the other thing as well is, because we were, we were looking earlier on at used lotuses, and we were looking at sort of 63 plates, and we looked at some that were like 07 plate, 06 plate, and they, they, kind, they look very similar. They still look pretty contemporary, I think. I think they age really well, so, yeah, why not? I'd be quite happy to see it continue in production. I'd like to see a, a, a more obtainable version, and preferably one with a fitted roof that doesn't leak. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, it makes you wonder if somebody like Caterham might see it as the logical progression. You know, just add it to the list. You know, we are Lotus... It's like, like Dave. Dave is to the BBC what um, <laughs> Caterham could be to Lotus with a load of their uh, former starring talent. And then people could start dropping it. And if you're driving this car on Dave... <laughs> what, what should we call it? I think we've got we had TVR, which was Trevor. I reckon Keith. Oh, I think we, we could call it the Dave. The Dave. Why not? Many many years ago, I picked up a TVR from a dealership. Drove it off their forecourt. Torrential rainstorm. There was so much water came in that it was sloshing around the footwells, and I had had to take it back because. It's very difficult to drive in three or four inches of water sloshing about the car. It does change the handling characteristics a little bit. So I thought you were going to say three or four inch heels then. <laughs> is, it, is this going back to a drag-related activity? It <laughs> is drag racing. In more plastic car news than a car we're pleased to see actually make production now. It's going to be in Wales, in Ebu Vale. About £40 million worth of orders of this is the TVR Griffith. And theoretically, we should actually see some of these cars starting to land next year, following on from a £2 million coronavirus loan from the government. TVR, as we know, sort of died a death. And uh, then a man called Les Edgar came along and decided he wanted to resurrect TVR and commissioned Gordon Murray to come up with a new one, which he did. And I seem to remember about, must be a good four, three, four years ago, we saw the running prototype down at Goodwood, didn't we? It was the red one, sat there and we all went and had a look Mm. and went, oh, that's lovely, we'll have one of those. And then it all went horribly quiet again. And it's only in the last couple of months or something i seem to remember reading that um funding has been um provided in order to allow them to continue on the track of getting them back into the into the shops and as i think i've mentioned in the past gordon murray his base at the minute he's he's moving but his base at the minute he's not a million miles from me and i do or used to back when i used to have to go out in the car which we don't and haven't done for the last 12 months used to see him tootling around in all sorts of things up to and including his prototype mclaren f1 which used to make my mornings but i have also seen driving around in the last couple of years some sort of heavily disguised black and white diagonally striped prototypes that look suspiciously tvr shaped doing the rounds here in surrey and so you know i've wanted to see the thing succeed and i hope that this injection of funds that he's managed to get that we heard about in the last couple of weeks will will see tvr back as another player in the in the market because you know like them or love them they were (laughs) quite the company weren't they certainly an interesting history definitely peter wheeler was the man that uh I, I, i think nursed them for the longest and invested the greatest amount of money and was was a real enthusiast uh, for for the cars. I quite liked him. I mean, I I drove Griffiths and 
the Chimera and, and the Tuscan and so on and so on. They were fabulous drives. They were a fabulous amount of grunt out of those uh, 3,500 engines. But I, I drove one from, uh, I think I was living in Worthing at the time, and I drove it to the motor show in Birmingham. That, that dates it a little bit, doesn't it? And back. <laughs> uh, and it, it nearly bankrupted me for fuel. <laughs> it was just a f- and I, I was sticking to the speed limits, and it was just a, an um, uh, you you needed to be followed by a tanker, your own personal tanker. They're they're great fun, great fun. They are leery and unforgiving, those. But someone that used to work with Jim and I would drive frequently, almost every day, some quite considerable mileage to work and back in his. That was with a Rover V8. He'd do a hundred mile round trip. Um, yeah coming to work and back in it in the uh, the days he was in the office and it was but he I mean he found his wonderfully reliable and it had you know I think within a few days of him buying it it had uh, it had broken down already and, uh, and he thought oh god here we go and it was uh, just I think the the only real sort of issue he ever had with it was a, uh, a loose wire coming in and out of the uh, immobiliser system and that was just uh, just cutting out the uh, the fuel pump as part of immobilising the car and uh, once I got to the bottom of that, which didn't take very long, it was it was consumables. You know, he had it serviced, mm. he, he'd change bushes on it and brake pads and discs, and that was about it, really. You know, the tyres would wear out, but not that quickly, and because um, it was a reasonably light car, so it didn't go through things like that too often. And he found, yeah, apart from the fuel cost, it was um, it was actually quite an economical thing to run. A very good friend of mine has owned a Cerbera, one of the early... Um... I think it was a 96 or 97 car, which was a beast of a thing to drive. It had absolutely no driver aids whatsoever other than a very long travel throttle, which you you used with extreme caution. But, my God, it was a hell of a thing to drive. And he got rid of it, and he nurtured that thing. He basically took it to pieces and almost rebuilt the thing to make it as perfect as he could. And he sold it for quite a nice profit, and he regretted it ever since, and has subsequently bought himself another one. So it's one of those things that gets in the blood. And he has this thing quite literally in pieces. It's it's a rolling chassis. All the bits are in various parts of his house as he's having them repowder-coated, rebuilt. He's basically putting it back to be better than it ever left Blackpool and when it's done it's going to be one hell of a car I'm for one I'm looking forward to the end of lockdown because I've promised him I'm going to go up there and help sort of rebuild things for him and put things back together and he's found the legendary graffiti hidden inside various panels oh, in the what does it say? <laughs> I, I think one of them was a, a nude lady with rather large chest uh, <laughs> another one was a word I can't use on a family podcast um <laughs> And there was also a picture of uh, a man's parts. <laughs> they were certainly consistent, absolutely consistent. But yes, this thing's going to be quite the beast, and um, I will keep you posted on progress. He's been sending me photos, which I've been trying to find, but um, I can't find them at the minute. But when I do, I'll um, I'll ask his permission and see if we can maybe put a couple up on the website. I'm just wondering, was some of the graffiti on the extras list? I mean, did did one <laughs> did one have to pay a little more money? Bonus content. They come as standard, sir. I really liked uh, that generation of TVRs. I had some great fun in them. The only thing that wasn't fun when I picked up a, I think a Tuscan, and parked it in a Sainsbury's car park and something went wrong with the uh, immobiliser. So it set everything going, lights flashing, the whole shebang. And there was no way I could turn it off. And uh, 
I had to phone the dealer and they had to come and basically hot wire it to um, <laughs> to, to stop it sending the, the, the thief signals, which was uh, alert. Well, it's, I'm sure nobody in Sainsbury's car park enjoyed the experience, but I enjoyed it least of all, believe me. I hope they keep some of the bonkers features like the doors, for example, the little dials and the, the centre console. You twist to pop the doors open or press the button under the mirrors. I, I really enjoy little touches like that. I thought mm. the interior was just so different from everything else. Even if it wasn't that modern, it was just very swoopy and covered in leather. I, I really enjoyed it. It was one of those examples of, you know, you, you see so many car companies. You know, well, why are we doing that? Well, that's what we've always done. Well, why do we put yeah. that there? Well, that's because that's where the research and the the company that we paid millions and millions of pounds to to mm-hmm. tell us how to design these things ergonomically told us to put it there. Oh, right. Okay. Whereas TVR almost seems to have gathered a bunch of people who've never seen a car before, <laughs> don't know what a car is, and say, right, if you had to open this, what would you do? And, and just come up with something that's so loopy. And you think, well, why have you done that? Why not? And that that's the thing. Why? Because we've always done it. Is uh, is safe and boring. Why not? Is is normally a more uh, a more entertaining answer. Well, well, mm. famously the the aforementioned Peter Wheeler, who was quite the eccentric. Um, some yeah, of the styling, I think guy. it was on the Chimera, the front opening on the front of one of the cars. I think it was the Chimera. The design of that for the indicator housing was um, designed because his great big pet dog had taken a chunk out of the styling buck and he thought oh that looks quite good he'd bitten the bit out or he'd taken a swipe at it with his paw and he went oh that looks quite good let's just leave it like that do it the same on the other side mirror it and we've got to indicate in the cells <laughs> you amazing. can't really argue with that can you and on, just on just on the topic if you want to see someone who's never really seen a tvr get to grips with one for the first time the aforementioned doug demuro who you know, I'm not his PR man. He doesn't need one. He's a very successful man. I love his videos because he's a man who delights in in quirks and features, as he quite rightly calls them on his videos. And uh, think how many quirks and features there were on the TVR he found that had been imported to Canada that he went. He he is literally aghast at half the stuff. He cannot believe it. And the button under the um, under the mirror that you mentioned earlier, Mike, was one of his favourites. But also the um, I think it was a Tuscan, one of the new ones. But the uh, the LED indicators that were up in the roof at the back of the car. Yeah, that was another one. Many many things. It's well worth looking for. If you search Doug DeMuro TV. You'll find it, and it's uh, highly, highly entertaining. It's an eccentric car, that isn't it? Let's be honest; they're, they're all a bit eccentric, but but brilliant because of it. Absolutely. Well, it was, it was Peter Wheeler's great indulgence, wasn't it? TVR. He yeah. sank a ridiculous amount of money into it, and it, it sank himself into the company. Mm. The company became Peter Wheeler, if you like, and with all the idiosyncrasies. I mean, I, you know, I met him several times, and he he was a uh, old school character an old school car builder if you like but you know you would liken him to somebody like uh, Lamborghini you know who built tractors had a rail with Ferrari and said I can do better than that um, mm. you know he was that sort of that sort of character yeah, he was, a, he was an interesting guy. I remember Jeremy Clarkson always got on very well with him when he used to read his stuff in Performance Car and then latterly Top Gear magazine. When he used to go up there, he always saw it as a huge treat to go and smoke loads of cigarettes with Peter Wheeler and then go and drive his loud cars around. <laughs> and uh, I think that tells you all you need to know, really. Really? 
Oh, there's one thing that I must mention, actually, since we last all spoke, and that is the Focus, which I assumed was going to be killed off at this MOT, has passed. Hurrah. Bagger of choice, the Mark 1 Focus, of course, passed with only the inside tyres on advisory. I, I can't believe that. It has, however, celebrated this by just constantly doing a wee, and it's just seems to be emptying water from somewhere in the car into the boot constantly and making everything damp now. So there's something else to fix. Hooray. But anyway, that has now passed. So we, the panic is over for trying to find another sub-thousand-pound banger. But if you have any ideas as to what maybe I should look at next, as always, tweet us, find us on Facebook, UK Motor Talk, or at UK Motor Talk, of course. Check us out online or write to us at UK Motor Talk Towers, PO Box, or whatever it is. Something else that's just popped into my head. Whilst we were talking about sports cars earlier on, and we spoke about uh, the Boxster against the Lotus, Jim and I decided to have a bit of a look online to see what you can buy a used Boxster for. And I was taken by something else. The Cayman. Now, I quite like the Cayman. Jim, you quite like the Cayman as well, don't you? I do. But what's impressive is how much you can buy them for. Because in my mind, they're still a relatively relatively exotic car or sporty car and i wasn't expecting to be quite as cheap as i found them to be and what was the cheapest one we found it was what about 10 grand wasn't it i think it was yeah there were a couple of um cat ends or uh, or cat dealies down at, at sub 10 um but with quite high mileage on them but actually you you could kind of pick up one you'd probably consider going to buy from yeah 11 11 or 12 and it, it seemed like a lot 14. of car for the money to me yeah 14 bought a nice one, didn't it? We saw, we saw a few that were sub 60,000 miles uh, yeah. with the various different bits you'd want on it and with full service history for that sort of money. And that seems like a lot of car for 14 grand when we were looking at Lotuses at 65. Mm. Well, you can get Boxsters for about five grand now. There's so many around that you've almost sort of got your pick, haven't you? You have, but I think the thing is with the Boxster, I don't want to say it's been done because, yeah, you can pick them up really cheap, not as cheap as Cayennes as in the ugly early ones. But you can pick them up from three and a half grand upwards. But I think for around 14 grand, if you, if you want a relatively flash car for not a lot of cash, it still looks relatively current to my eye, apart from the interior, which doesn't. We were looking at 2006, 2007 cars for that sort of money. I reckon that's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a few elephant traps with those aren't there things like the ims bearing and so on a lot of people think, oh a nice cheap porsche i'll have one of those and they take it down to their local dealer and go well the engine's gonna have to come out before you do anything else <laughs> at which point they go should have should have bought that bloody lotus really shouldn't i but you know <laughs> buyer beware do your homework when we uh, when we flick through um just porsches for sale and sorted by price lowest first which is um probably nev- <laughs> never a good idea when it comes to buying always cars always fun though pa- particularly fun. porsches <laughs> i think the uh, the first couple of pages were were almost all kns weren't they and yeah. you just looked at those and you just knew you could tell by looking at all of them that they would just be financially ruinous to run but there was, a, there was quite an interesting picture. One of the cars that was for sale seemed... I, the focus of the pictures was more the, the young girlie, who I presume was the guy's girlfriend, draped over the car, more so than, uh, than the actual car itself, which was, uh, which was an odd sales tactic. But uh, we looked at that. <laughs> anyway. It worked for TVR in the 70s. Well, this <laughs> it certainly did. It worked for every motor show globally, I think, in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> Thank you. 
from Porsche now then to Porsche. Now we've spoken a lot about electric cars and there are lots of fantastic electric cars, lots of exciting stuff that's coming out. What I found quite interesting is that Porsche have been spending some money on creating synthetic fuel. Have you guys seen this? No, no. I haven't seen this story. No, this is, I thought was quite interesting. And now, the science bit. No, I don't think he understood it either. I'm just trying to get my head around this, but as far as I can tell, how it works is that you use renewable sources such as wind or whatever, solar, to make the hydrogen electricized and then you have to take the carbon dioxide out of it and bear with me here and then combine the two together so the carbon dioxide and the hydrogen to make a sort of methanol that is as clear as mud can i suggest googling for porsche synthetic fuel now the beauty of this is that you can then store it as a liquid which you could then put in the ground and then you could put in your car via a series of, well, let's call them petrol stations, shall we? Because that's exactly what they would be, meaning that you could actually fill your car up. Now, the idea is that this will be available next year, 2022. So it's not like it's a long way off in the future. And by 2026, there may be about half a million litres or so. So Porsche working with Exxon Mobil, who do Esso, for example, because I guess they're going to need to find something after dinosaur juice to be able to sell us well the germans do have um do have form when it comes to synthetic fuels because famously during the war when they realized that uh, russia wasn't going to be the great big petrol station they thought it was going to be they had to go back and start going well how the hell are we going to power all these tanks that we're going to have to drive back from stalingrad and uh, they started building synthetic fuel plants in the the many conquered regions that they still had hold of at the time i only know this because i uh i went through a documentary about it today for work <laughs> I, th- I thought that was good good specialist knowledge nevertheless um so the idea is that they'll be able to make this fuel out of near enough thin air and it will produce just water out the back and i, I like this idea very much not least because it means there'll be something that I can put in my car apart from dinosaur juice when later on dinosaur juice is is no longer socially or economically acceptable. The catch is that it's going to cost, at the moment, about £10 a litre. So it's not cheap. And they're going to use it to power some of their own fleet for demonstration purposes. But I think that's quite exciting because the more that they can produce, the cheaper it's going to get. And then suddenly it might become as affordable as, as normal dinosaur juice is. Unfortunately, £10 a litre is the start point, and when the uh, various European chancellors of the Exchequer, uh, if that's the plural for chancellors of the Exchequer, but never mind, uh, it'll probably be about 50 quid an egg cup full, so uh, yeah, I don't think it'll be viable. I guess it's not surprising that they're going to use this in motorsport as well, and Porsche aren't the only people that experiment in this. We know that there are people that use poo to power cars and buses and all kinds of things methane so who knows looks like there is a potential future for some sort of synthetic fuel which would be a great idea if they can make it cheap enough and presumably clean enough well if it is for motorsport you know the uh even the the race fuel that we were using in the minis was two pounds 89 a litre plus vat or something stupid so a tenner a litre for uh, for formula one teams doesn't sound like an insane amount of money to me. I mean, what's the limit these days? I think it's 100 kilos for the uh, for the entire Grand Prix distance. So, depending on how hot or cold it is, roughly, uh, 
what's that, 125 litres, something like that. So if, uh, yeah, if, if that costs you 1,200 quid for fuel for the Grand Prix, that's a, a drop in the ocean for a Formula One team, isn't it? Compared to some of the stuff they were using in the 90s, which was uh, hugely toxic, like jet fuel, and there was a sort of, uh, following that analogy, there was a sort of arms race for an increasing amount of uh, uh, of constituent chemicals, all of which were toxic, and, and the guys, you know, they, they might have been pumping it in at the, at the, at the front, uh, but the guys at the back had uh, had to wear spacesuits to uh, mix the damn stuff before it went to the front of the pits for the cars. The, some of that stuff was absolutely poisonous and hardly a surprise it was banned. Was that in the uh, in the good old days when you could smoke whilst refueling in the pit lane? <laughs> <laughs> it's not oh, so Oh, me fag, Jenny. I've just <laughs> got to stick some of this in the car. <laughs> the, the, just, just one thing that arises. I mean, if this stuff does become, you know, the the new wonder fuel, are we going to see a, a retrenchment by governments such as our own who've staked the future on electric and renewables, and saying that internal combustion engines are going to be verboten from sort of twenty thirty or twenty thirty five or whatever number they've plucked out of the air at the minute? It will be interesting to see whether, if it is that good, that it will drive policy change in in governments who have decided that that's it. For, for internal combustion. Surely you're not proposing a U-turn, David. <laughs> Surely not. You know me too well. <laughs> it's more a case of emissions. If you haven't got um, nasty hydrocarbons coming out the back end of your car, why not? We, we can assume that normal petrol and diesel power cars, probably petrol ones, let's face it, are still going to be kicking around for at least 10 years in common use. By the time EV or whatever it is that we're moving on to next is is in full force, so it makes sense to be able to have something to be able to run them on. Yeah, because I think the 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 target has only ever been um, tailpipe emissions, hasn't it? They uh, they they seem to have separated out the issue of where does the energy come from to charge up your car. Well, that's that's an entirely separate conversation. That's a conversation that the energy companies and uh, the government and various regulators have between themselves. The uh, I think pr- probably a far easier focus for the consumer uh, and the average motorist is to say, try and get your tailpipe emissions to zero. We'll worry about zero emissions for production of the energy to get you there. So in theory, as long as you're you're still hitting that tailpipe zero emissions level uh, or harmful emissions anyway then lump them in why not keep going Mm. there's also been some quite interesting developments in terms of hydrogen fuel cells in recent months or at least that become public in recent months and even cars that be able to generate their own hydrogen theoretically or be able to generate their own fuel effectively so the idea that electric is the complete future who knows we certainly I think all agree that it's the medium to long term future as far as as far as we can see, because there isn't anything that's coming out quite so quickly. But who knows? It's pretty much worldwide policy currently. But, uh, you know, it it may prove, as you're suggesting, to be misguided in the in the longer run. And and certainly hydrogen and fuel cells would seem to be the longer term aim. A sort of miracle petrol might well be viable as well. I, I heard a statistic today. Uh, that I thought was quite entertaining, which was um, the number of uh, charging points there are now for EVs. Uh, And I'd never seen a survey done that was as accurate as this one claims to be. There's 26,000 charging points in the UK. That's more than I thought there were. But the statistic that really surprised me was 4,000 of them are free of charge currently. 
because a lot of local authorities where they've installed them are keen to push the EV agenda, so they're giving this stuff away. Uh, and a lot of supermarket chains apparently are also not charging. You have to spend a certain amount in the store. Yeah, all the uh, the, the nearest ones to uh, to me that, that I use, there's one in Sainsbury's, only half of it works, which is irritating, but the one in Sainsbury's is free. Uh, Tesco have just put four or six in, I think they've they've put, you know, put a good chunk of them in. Uh, they're all free of charge. And the um, the two that are in uh, in the multi-storey car park in town, you pay to charge, but it's it gets you free parking. And perversely, because you pay by the minute to charge, but by the hour to park, if you're there for an hour and a half, it's cheaper to charge up than it is to park. So it, it, it pays for itself. And it's, uh, you know, somebody once said, that's a bit daft, isn't it? What's the point in that? And I said, well, if, if when you were parked up or, uh, or going shopping or doing something, somebody was just very slowly tipping petrol into the side of your car and all you had to do was put the nozzle in for them, you would, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, I suppose. But it's, it, it, it was a very odd conversation because it was, oh, I'm getting something for free. And somebody said, what's the point in that? But it's, uh, I, I think attitudes on that will, uh, will change over time. And it, it does actually kind of make me seek out one supermarket over another because I know the local Asda, all the, uh, the charging points in there cost money. So I don't go shopping there because why would I when I can go somewhere else and, uh, and get some free mileage? Since we last spoke, I've also been down the garage. Now, if you've been onto YouTube or Facebook, whatever, you'll probably see that there is now a video up of me uh, wandering around my old car. Now, you guys have said I have a weird and unusual love for this thing. But I did have to go down the garage and just take the cover off and have a look and see what it's what it's like. Now, I don't know if that sounds like a silly thing to say, but it's been parked down there for nearly two years. And I wouldn't say that, I've lost the love for it because that's not quite true. I haven't had the time for it. And it also just isn't running right. Last time I took it out, every time I came up to a junction, it would just cut out and, and stall. When you're coming down from like 70 miles an hour or whatever it might be, you're doing 30 miles an hour, who knows? But it would just cut out and that's really inconvenient. What was more inconvenient was then when it got really hot, it wouldn't restart, which means you had to push it out of the way. So long story short, I've got to decide what I'm going to do with the car. Now, I'm going to have to spend some money on it. And originally it was a 1.4 CVH, not particularly exciting. I then put a two litre in, which I did relatively cheaply because I was poor and I couldn't afford to do anything other than do it relatively cheaply. But it worked absolutely fine since about 2008 or so. So I have a few options. I either try and fix the problem. It's running on standard engine management at the moment, standard Ford engine management. I can build up a new engine for it and put it on something exotic uh, like throttle bodies or make a supercharger system and fit that to the car, which is what I originally planned to do. Or I could just go ahead and fit engine management. Or I could buy another complete car and basically return the car to standard. Now, I've asked for people's comments and there's been a, a few suggestions, one of which is leave it standard. Well, sorry, it's too late for that because uh, it's not standard now, but I suppose I could make it standard again. Another is fit a ZVH turbo. That's the old fashioned top part of the engine from the CVH and a ZTEC bottom end, making it a two litre turbo that looks old fashioned on the top, but is modern underneath and is kind of, well, how should I put it? You have to sort of fudge the two to make them go together. I think I'm probably going to have to spend at least a thousand pounds on it, maybe a couple to get it up and running. 
what do you guys reckon? Well, I think just just to make it exciting and make it feel even you know, make it feel old fashioned and a bit old school. I think you know we were chatting earlier about how um, uh, chassis and four wheel drive systems, but also power delivery is is too good these days. You know the Focus RS, everything builds and builds and builds, and even for a turbocharged engine, it's all very linear. 90s, 80s, 90s, even early 2000s turbo cars were nothing, 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 wallop, there's a hedge. And that, that made them feel <laughs> exciting. So whatever you do, just make sure that you manage it in such a way so that the boost is nothing, 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 five bar. And then it, that will keep you on your toes. And, and yeah, it, it'll be exciting. It's funny to say about the turbo, like, because a friend of a friend, always the way this goes, had a Fiesta RS turbo. And that was much the same with the lag. Now, said friend told him that there wasn't a speed record for reverse. And allegedly what he did was then found a, a country road, a quiet country road, single track, put it in reverse and tried to see how fast he could make his Fiesta RS Turbo go. <laughs> and, uh, and did your friend at that stage find out the, uh, the benefits of rear wheel steering at that stage? He did, with boost. <laughs> and... <laughs> With a, a sudden and and terrible it. turbo lag in reverse, just nothing, 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 all the boost, rear wheel steering, hedge, field, the whole bit. Um, straight through a fence, that was it. <laughs> so that would be entertaining. RS turbo engine. Yeah. There you go. That, that, that kind of job. Yeah, yeah, you see, yeah. an RS turbo engine, standard RS turbo engine is A, expensive these days to get hold of, but B, they're 130 horsepower, so it's less than the, the standard two litre I've got in there now. All right, Sierra Cosworth engine. That that would be fantastic in there. And you can get them to fit front-wheel drive, but you need to have considerably more than a couple of thousand pounds to buy an engine for one of those now. So It's a good idea. I mean, the option is, I suppose, to go for something completely not in the Ford stable and find something relatively cheap. Like, I could buy a whole other supercharged Mini like I currently have and put the engine supercharger and everything else from that drop it in in one go and you could probably buy an entire car with other problems for example for seven or eight hundred quid that could be interesting but is it sacrilegious ev it yeah i would love to do that and this would upset so many people that is really tempting and certainly if i had an unlimited budget that is what i would do but you need about 10 grand i reckon to make it mm. an exciting ev rather than just electric You'd certainly have an interesting power delivery. Lots of talk. Alpha two and a half V six. If you if you're going complete transplant, Ooh. two and a half V six. Amazing now, that would be noise. Funny. And that's probably the most reliable thing Alpha ever made. <laughs> I like that. Is is it heavy? What's it made of? Uh, cast iron. Yes, it is. It is quite heavy. Yes, you would have to um, you'd have to adjust your suspension accordingly. But it's. It probably isn't that. It's only a two and a half, isn't it? What about a two and a half um, Ford? You know, the the one out of the, um, the Mondeo. Mondeo. That's the two twenty, even. It has been done, but it it puts a lot of weight over the front end. So what happens is chronic understeer. So that that is tempting. I suppose you could go the other way and put a one uh, liter well, in it. Yeah, I was going to say one liter EcoBoost. Yeah, because I mean they mm. are. Well, you can you can buy them out of the box with 140 horsepower and they're very easy to get to 200 brake horsepower fits mm. on a sheet of a4 paper and it's really light there we go maybe that's and an we, answer. We, we have access to a reasonable supply of them don't we we do so there you go if you've got some ideas as to what we should do don't forget to tweet us at uk motor talk 
find us on Facebook or look us up on YouTube, to be honest. UK Motor Talk again. You can see me prattling on about my car for possibly too long. I suppose we'd better mention the F1 then. Uh, yeah, there's, there's been a, uh, a bit of news. I suppose it's good for, um, for the Chancellor of the Exchequer, as uh, presumably Lewis Hamilton is off the furlough scheme now, although well, technically he was unemployed, actually, for, uh, for a while. So um, whether he's eligible anymore, I'm not, uh, I'm not quite sure. But he has re-signed only for, uh, only for this year, though. They'd said in, uh, in various outlets that uh, that was always the plan and, and it's a good short-term thing to see where we are next year and blah, blah, blah. I'm not quite sure I believe that, to be honest. I think it's a case of they'd. I think they kind of got stuck with uh, with contract negotiations and and to try and avoid a a Senna race by race deal. They said, well, okay, should we just stick as we are for the next ten months, technically, and um, try again towards the end of the year if uh, if you want to stick around? I don't know. Do we think he was was he asking a bit too much? And and Mercedes had said. No, that's what's on offer. Take it or leave it. Or uh, what do we think? I think he's done what's the best for Lewis Hamilton. As always, he will be quids in, and he'll be happy, and he'll be very quick, and he'll probably beat everybody. And then, <laughs> come the end of the year, he'll go. Do you know what? I want to go off and drive my own electric off-road cars now because his friend Jensen's out playing. I saw that he was doing that this week. I don't know. I I suspect that he'll probably at the end of it decide enough's enough. I've had my time. I did quite well. I beat everyone. I've off home to go and play with the money. I mean, the kids or whatever. So, or maybe even have kids. He'll probably get to the end of it if he really enjoys it. If he beats everybody and still sees it as a bit of a hoot, and he's still being nicely paid, he'll probably come back for another year if Mercedes will have him. But I strongly suspect this is probably it. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I, I don't know. It's just that um, uh, lust for for something different. I suppose to to mix mix things up a bit like you know George Russell coming in because because uh, Lewis had Corona it's like well actually what you know what a good idea every you know one or two races a year every team has to rotate one or two of its drivers you know and uh, whether it gets pulled out of a hat or the team makes a decision or, or whatever it is I think just after so many years of Mercedes domination and Lewis domination it's I, th- I think we're all just craving a bit of a mix-up a bit of a shake-up a bit of uh, a bit of something different really I think that's what we're after a bit like the you know the sprint race idea that's been floated this week to uh, you know three of the rounds they'll have qualifying on a Friday a 20 lap race or so on a Saturday and, uh, and the main race on Sunday and it's um, you know a few people have said oh it's, it's not touring cars it it randomizes it etc and it's like well I don't think that randomizes it because the rules are the same for everyone you know what makes it random is uh, is one lap qualifying in order because if it's raining at the start you're buggered if it's raining at the end you're buggered um whereas if if everybody has the same chance and the same bit of tarmac at the same time then then there's less randomness to it but like i say it's just it's just that need to uh, to shake things up to make it a bit different this year uh, i chucked a, a few quid on george russell to win the championship this year as soon as the uh, as soon as the books open really and the odds were getting shorter and shorter and shorter so i was uh, i was quite chuffed with the odds i'd managed to get on it and then uh, all of a sudden they've uh, they've gone up a bit high again but you never know you never know <laughs> So there we have it then. If Jim's Beck comes in, he's going to be buying us all supercars, um, sports cars and possibly Lotuses. Who knows? Yes, you can pick whatever you like in a, in scale 143rd. I'll, I'll go with it. 143rd cars now. <laughs> they used to be about 30 quid, 150 quid, some of them. Ridiculous. Anywho, that's a chat for another time. So I reckon that brings us nicely to the end. 
don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and wherever else you like, on YouTube, of course. Write to us if you want to. Let us know what you think we should be doing with The Onion. Don't just say scrap it, because I've heard it all before. (laughs) Yep, we'll see you next time. So from me, Mike, goodbye. From me, Jim, stay safe, take care. I've been Graham, and it's goodbye from me, and uh, have a good week. Me, Dave. Don't go buying yourself a cheap Porsche KN. It will hurt you and everyone will think you're a drug dealer. <laughs> Take care. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.